Chapter 5, Part 1 of Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion. Edited by Gerald Bernie Smith. Chapter 5, Part 1 The Study of Early Christianity. 1. Task and Method. The Point of Departure. The first problem confronting the student of early Christianity is the choice of a starting point. Where ought he to begin his study in order to obtain a correct and full understanding of that historical phenomenon called early Christianity? A moment's reflection will show that this question cannot be answered so easily as one might on first thought imagine. While the name Christianity is said to have been coined at Antioch in Syria early in the 40s, Acts 11.23. The religious movement itself had already been in existence for some time. If by Christianity we mean an independent movement differentiated from Judaism by the establishment of a new organization, ritual, and doctrine, we may properly look for its beginnings in the period following close upon the death of Jesus. But this period, while it may mark the formal beginning of the new religion, does not supply an adequate starting point for a thoroughly genetic study. Although Jesus did not formally break with Judaism, and so did not found any new organization, his work was so significant for the establishment of the new enterprise that the latter cannot be properly understood without taking account of his career and the career of his followers prior to his death. Again, he and they were part of a specific phase of human experience which gave them their problems and supplied them with a substantial religious heritage from the past. John the Baptist preceded them, and all stood within the great stream of later Jewish history. Moreover, Palestine had been ruled in turn by several different powers, finally coming under the domination of Rome. Consequently, conditions within Judaism cannot be properly interpreted without some reference to the Greco-Roman world of which Judaism was now a part. The student of early Christianity must take account of these historical antecedents if he would make a thoroughly genetic study of the new religion. The Ulterior Limit A second problem is the choice of a stopping place. At what date did the Christian movement become so well established as an independent religion and win for itself so substantial a place in the Mediterranean world that it may fairly be said to have reached maturity? While recognizing that all history is one great stream of life and not a series of unrelated segments, we still may detect stages in the growth of a movement when certain phases of its life become so fully crystallized as to mark a definite period in its growth. Although Christianity did not receive legal recognition in the Roman world until the issuance of the Edict of Milan in 313 AD, its distinctive character and form as a future world religion were practically established by the middle of the third century. By this time, the movement may be said to have passed from youth to maturity. Before this date, a distinctively Christian literature 
had been assembled and canonized. Apologists had come forward to defend the new faith before the political authorities, and to commend it to the learned. Christian communities had become established all about the Mediterranean, especially in the chief centers of population, and problems of organization, ritual, and doctrine had been worked out along lines which remained fairly stable for some time. It is a purely arbitrary, and on the whole erroneous, custom to make early Christianity end approximately with the year a hundred at the close of the so-called New Testament period. The student must extend the range of his vision well into the third century if he would follow at all fully the course of Christianity's initial history. THE SCOPE OF STUDY Within this general period, how comprehensive should the scope of the student's inquiry be? If he desires to become acquainted only with certain externals in the history of the new religion, such as its territorial expansion, its ecclesiastical organization, its literary products, or its doctrinal tenets, he may confine himself within relatively narrow limits. But if in addition to these items he also desires insight into the vital experiences and activities of actual Christian people, who faced various problems and worked out their own salvation with fear and trembling, the scope of inquiry must be greatly enlarged. These vital matters cannot be understood unless one becomes intimately acquainted with the actual world in which the early Christians lived. And since the new religion drew its membership from many sources, a variety of surroundings contributed toward the making of life within the new communities. Converts from Palestinian Judaism were equipped with a set of experiences determined more immediately by political, social, cultural, and religious conditions within Palestine, but more remotely by conditions within the contemporary Greco-Roman world to which Palestine politically belonged. Converts from among the Jews of the dispersion had still another set of experiences, in which contact with Greco-Roman life formed a more important item. Those who came over to Christianity from paganism, and these constituted by far the greater number of its adherents long before the close of our period, had still a different heritage, the reality and importance of which are too often minimized. The scope of the student's inquiry must be sufficiently comprehensive to include the whole range of different Christians' experience in contact with their varied environment during the first two centuries of our era. THE DEVELOPMENTAL CHARACTER OF CHRISTIANITY One more item must be noted in order to ensure correct procedure. What conception of Christianity's nature is implied in the foregoing definition of the historian's task? This type of study will necessarily view Christianity in terms of life, the vital religious experience of actual people. This means that wide variations are to be recognized, since varying types of personality set in different environments and drawing upon different historical heritages must produce much complexity in real life. 
while the historian will note items of uniformity among Christians, he will not neglect items of diversity, which are quite as essential to a correct understanding of the actual religious life of believers. Nor will he attempt to define Christianity simply in terms of static quantities of belief, ritual, or practice. The beliefs which different Christians held, the forms they employed in worship, and the decrees they enacted for the conduct of the ideal life must all receive due attention. But the true historian will ever remember that his work is not completed when he has merely catalogued and evaluated these products of early Christian living. His ultimate task is to interpret the great complex of actual life out of which these things came, and of which they formed an integral part. Thus, Christianity must be conceived as thoroughly vital and developmental in its nature. End of chapter 5, part 1